Okay, hello everybody. Last week we had a look at the main bulk of the book of Job, what happened to him and what his friends said about it and how little use it was. And we got to the point where God comes in in a great storm of wind. The last speaker can feel it coming because he gets more and more panicky as he gets towards the end of his chapter. And finally God breaks in. And now I'm going to read an extract from Job 38. We're going to look at what God has to say and then we're going to hopefully look at what we can learn from this very difficult book. You almost need a good actor to present this. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you and you answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it, measuring line that is? Or on what were its bases sunk? What's it built on? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Lovely picture. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and the thick darkness its swaddling band, prescribed bounds for it, set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no further. And here shall your proud waves be stopped. Oh, have you commanded the morning? Since your days began, caused the dawn to know its place so that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? Where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the path to its home? Surely you know, for you were born then and the number of your days is great. And it goes on like this. I've given you the idea. The reason I'm not reading the lot is I want you to read it when you get home. So God takes Job through the creation, the, the planet itself, the control of the sea, timing of night and day, control of light and darkness, death. Surely you know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Even God can be sarcastic sometimes. Then he goes on to talk about snow and hail. Have you seen the treasures of the snow? I mean, why do you think I send rain and thunderbolts in the desert where nothing grows? Oh, and then there's the dew and the ice and the hoarfrost. Have you seen what it does to the trees? And then he goes to the stars. Who, who brings out the signs of the zodiac in their, in their uh, season, the constellations? He even asks him about the physics that control the heavens. And that's really modern, isn't it? And how all this affects the earth. Now that's more advanced than, you know, a lot of scientists. Oh, can, can you command the rain or the lightning? 
you know you know what makes it how can you make it strike where you want to um then he goes on to the wild animals and he talks about lions ravens mountain goats and deer and then he gets really interesting and says look why do you think the wild donkey goes free serves no apparent purpose just roams the desert makes a horrible noise and is no good to anybody and what use is the wild ox you could do with a bit of that couldn't you getting your old farms ploughed and the rest of it you can't use him though why why do you think i made him he's no good is he why has the ostrich got wings when it can't fly doesn't half make a flap and by the way why does it neglect its eggs because the Lord God has deprived it of wisdom. Going to argue with that? Oh, and by the way, it can run faster than a horse. Did you know that? Oh, by the way, and yes, while we come to horses, are you, I'm, I'm ad-libbing like mad, but it's all there. Are you responsible for the power and the majesty of the horse? I'm not a horse, you know, it's not one of my hobbies, but they are such magnificent animals. I understand why some people are absolutely besotted with them I can, I can oh and do you control the flight and the incredibly sharp vision of the great birds of prey you know flying three miles high and can see a mouse and then god says come on you've been arguing with me i want an answer you need to respond you started the argument now you answer it and Job says, I'm very small, how can I answer you? I've nothing to say. And God says, pull yourself together. Do you think I'm wrong? Can you thunder like I can? And don't forget there's a storm raging. Put on your great majesty and dignity and bring down all the wicked. If you can do that, I will agree that you can be victorious by yourself. One of my um, commentaries points out that he then goes to some of his enormous jokes, God's enormous jokes, and he talks about the crocodile and the hippopotamus. The crocodile is generally known as the Leviathan, and the hippopotamus is generally rendered something like behemoth, which is an old Hebrew, you know, but it's generally thought, you know, it's the hippo and the, and, and the crocodile. And talking of the jokes, God's jokes, there was a wonderful writer a hundred years ago called G.K. Chesterton. He, you need, he's quite a bookish sort of writer. And he was a Roman Catholic, but he knew, and he jolly well knew God. And Chesterton writes about this. It's one thing to describe, if you're writing a book, an interview with a gorgon or a griffin, a creature that doesn't exist. It's another thing to discover that the rhinoceros does exist and then enjoy the fact that he looks as if he didn't. Now that's thinking, isn't it? So God says, can you do anything at all to, marriage, to manage a hippopotamus or a, or a crocodile? So will you bring him along on a lead for your young girls to play with? And in the end, Job starts quoting himself back to God. He says, yeah, I really did say all that to you, didn't I? And I heard about you, but now I've seen you. And, oh God, I am just so sorry. Now, the interesting thing then is that God gives Job's friends a right ticking off. He doesn't include Elihu in this. He talks about the three, the old wise people, Eliphaz, Bildad, and what's his name, Zophar. 
the ones who knew all about it and how Job really must be a sinner because it's only the sinners who suffer and it's the righteous who uh, live wonderful lives. And Job has to point out to them halfway through the book, actually, some of the godless have a flipping good time. And they do, don't they? But, and Job has complained. We've read Job's complaints. But God says to the friends, you have not spoken right things about me like my servant Job has. So he didn't mind Job being rude about him. Isn't that interesting? What can we pick out of Job for our own benefit? Well, I've got a number of things jotted down. One is that if you are presented with someone who is suffering, it is far better to listen than to talk, especially when there's nothing much you can say, especially when we think we might have some reason. You know, if you hadn't, done that last week it wouldn't be hurting you know this sort of thing but if they're really going through it it's one of the hardest things I've had to learn from my wife who's a counsellor be a better listener because the temptation is either oh do you know I had a friend that you know I I, I happened to there oh that's they don't want to hear about your friend they want to tell you about themselves or you know, that happened to me, and you know what the answer is? They don't want to know that you've got some stupid answer. They want to unburden you listen. Next point. We live and have done in our society for a couple of hundred years under the influence of a movement called the Enlightenment. The point of that, of saying that, is the Enlightenment was when philosophers and scientists in the infancy of science developed this theory that we can look into things and we can understand everything if we look long enough. We can dissect the human body. We can find out how it works. And I mean, medicine has benefited a lot from that sort of thing, and it's been beneficial. But it goes off the rails where it says we can understand everything if we look hard enough and long enough. You can't. But Job also teaches us that when we see God, we won't need to ask. And that is not the same as saying we will find out what it was all about. I don't think we will, but we won't need to. And I came across a most wonderful quote from Martin Luther. You remember the great reformer who started the Reformation? Um, Roman Catholic Church in his day was hopelessly corrupt and controlled everything and Luther was a very very blunt edged monk who jolly well saw through it all and then he quotes the question what was God doing and where was he before he created heaven you you get this sort of question from people don't you and St Augustine said that since God created time along with creation, the question doesn't mean anything because there wasn't any time before creation. So before creation is a meaningless statement. Try and work that out. But it does mean you don't need to bother with the question. But Luther, when someone asked where God was before heaven was created, Augustine answered, he was in himself. When someone asked me the same question, I said he was building hell for such idle, presumptuous, fluttering and inquisitive spirits as you. I love that, don't you? You know, there's a certain thing about God that ought to put us all in our place. Yes, we can come covered by the blood of the Lamb. We can come invited by Jesus into his presence. But never let us get over familiar. Let's remember...
One question that the book answers absolutely thoroughly is do the suffering always deserve it? And the answer is absolutely no. All right, you can sometimes see people who've brought some sort of calamity on themselves. That's, that's a different question. But Jesus himself confirms that we are not given the answer to why some people suffer without deserving it. There had been some, um, this is in Luke 13 somewhere, there had been some atrocity com um, committed by Pontius Pilate. First time we read of him in the gospel, sometime before Jesus came before him. There were some, the, the, the verse says, who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now, we don't know anything about that incident apart from the reference to it in that particular text. And it was a pretty awful atrocity and it would have violated Jewish people's religious laws and everything. And Jesus said, do you suppose that they were sinners more than all the other Galileans and that's why this happened to them? No, I'm telling you, they weren't. And what about, <coughs> says Jesus, do you remember the tower in Siloam that collapsed the other week, month, whenever? We don't know anything about that incident either. But it had obviously been in the Jerusalem news. What about those 18 people that died when that tower fell on them? What about the two people killed at London Bridge? Do you suppose that they were sinners above all the people at Siloam at the time? And Jesus says, I, I tell you, no. How many things, important things does Jesus say in the Gospels where he says, I am telling you. Truly, truly, I tell you, I am the way. And when he says it, it's something vitally important for emphasis. And he says, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will perish as well. It's to put you on the spot. It's terribly easy to stand back and say, hang on a minute, you answer me the question about all those suffering people over there and then I might just believe. I know you've got past that. Don't worry, I'm not accusing you of it. But you see, it puts the thought process in order. Okay, Jesus doesn't give any answers either, neither does the book of Job. Why people suffer without deserving it. So, okay, is God unfair? We know the world's unfair, there's unfair things happen in it. But is God in control of the world? And if he is, why? Don't quite like to go there, but you want to, don't you? Know what I mean? Now, there have been, a, you know, he never explains even what he was up to. And eventually, Job gets God's blessing again, and he has another wife. And I think his wife stayed with him, actually, but he had more children and became very rich again and, you know, died a very successful man. But God never told him what, God, what, what he'd been playing at. Never. Some people have tried to say, look, the world is so unfair, there can't be a good God. Okay, if there is no good God, where did we get our notion that the world ought to be fair? Do you see what I'm saying? Just suppose it's all, do you know, I was looking at a programme on the late Jonathan Miller last night until I turned it off. Famous opera director, playwright, theatre guy, critic, music lover, one of the original Beyond the Fringe star, um, review in the 60s, if you're like me, that old. Quite famous guy, absolute atheist. We now know that there was no special creation. 
We know that it was all, I forget what he says it was, but whatever it was, it was mighty clever, but it wasn't God, you know? Um, and I turned it off. Because we've got that sense within us that things ought to be fair. And if evolution was true, if I feel like nicking your handbag, I'm going to nick it. Why? It's me, it's as I want to. No sense of wrong or fair. You've got money in your pocket, haven't you? Hand it over or I'll slug you one. You know, that's, if, if there is no God, there is no right or wrong, there's no fair. So it's very deep within us. Why? And it's a lot deeper than just the milk and water sort of, oh, working for the greater good of mankind idea they try and sell you. That doesn't butter any parsnips, not with me anyway. And I mean, do you remember, who has seen the film Bruce Almighty? Good. Right, you remember the, remember the proposition? About the only serious film Jim Carrey has probably ever made, I should think, and it is serious underneath all that. I'm going to be God, right, you're going to be God, I'm going to answer every prayer with a yes. And he gets a mountain of emails every day, and he's saying, yes, 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 yes. And the film then deals with the chaos that consumes when everybody's had exactly what they wanted. He wants to come to Cornerstone. I'd far rather he didn't, because I don't like him. Sorry, Aunt, uh, Danny. But I don't like him very much, so we're both going to get our prayers answered, and we're still going to, you know, etc. Sorry about that. It was a, a stupid idea. And Mr Chesterton again. If God didn't exist, there'd be no atheists. Work that one out. I love it. Just right, too. So, the world's so unfair there can't be a good God. That won't really do when you think of why we insist in our minds that the world ought to be fair. Base it on the goodness of God, and you've got the puzzle we've got in Job, but at least you've based it on something. So there was a rabbi once, a recent, not a New Testament time, who taught that God was fair, but he was powerless to stop bad things happening, I discovered looking at my commentary. But you see, <laughs> that doesn't consult with what we've just read in Job 38. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? You know, God powerless doesn't work. There's a very thought-provoking book by the writer Philip Yancey, who is worth reading whatever he writes, um, called Disappointment with God. And he says in that book, don't mix up life with God. There's no query, life is unfair. The usual saying is life's a bitch, but you'll forgive me. You know, you know what I mean. It, it, it's, it's a commonplace. Jesus never, un, never denied the unfairness of life. You know, why does he sort of, why didn't he heal, feed the 5,000 every day? That's what they wanted and he wouldn't have it. Why did he only heal one man at the pool of Siloam? Why, why, you could go on. Jesus makes no apology. And the world is broken. I, th I think what you have to say is that when Adam succumbed to the temptation of the devil he broke the world because the whole thing was supposed to be under Adam's dominion as God's representative working in harmony with God who came and walked with him every evening and Adam broke that and when it says as God said to Adam the day you eat of it you will surely die Adam didn't die physically but he died spiritually and it affected the whole of creation I mean, God's promised a new heaven and a new earth because, meanwhile, and he's not done it yet because he's delayed judgment for people to come to him. That we do know.
If you sum up, says one of my commentaries, the book's response, Job's response to the question of how do I handle my own suffering? Because we've all been through it, might be going through it now, might be nearly impossible. We all know what it feels like, even if it isn't happening now. And he says from Job, when it first happened to Job, don't forget it happened to Job in two stages. Firstly, he lost everything he had. And he said to his wife, the Lord gave and the Lord takes away. Shall we receive good from God's hand? Shall we not also receive evil? And refused to blame God. But then the devil was prepared to give him that loathsome skin disease. And that jolly nearly broke him. So the thing is, says the commentary, try to accept God's will. And if that's impossible... Speak to God about it, tell him everything and shout your head off. My words, not the commentaries. But come right out with it. I've often thought it's a mistake to try and be polite with God in prayer. Look at the Psalms. Here we are again, this is the last time I was here. You know, um, wake up for goodness sake, you. Can't you see what's happening? The Psalms are full of it. And God put them in his book so he doesn't mind. And often we pray and, Lord, you know, it's... If you really don't mind, it's uh, sort of a Nigel Haver's approach to prayer. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, well, it would be most awfully good of you if you could and jolly well get up there with your knuckles and pray. I'd love to play you a piece of French organ music that makes the point, but never mind, that's for another time. Um, so don't mince your words in prayer. But one last thing. Oh, and dear old Chesterton, the riddles of God are more satisfying than the solutions of man difficult if you're the one who's suffering but he's got a point but I think the, the, the thing at last that I want to bring out is that in scripture Satan is always under God's authority and I felt a bit hemmed in since I wrote that in my note the notes I, I roughed them up a bit for, for, for tonight just earlier on but the whole thing was written before I came last week. And I've been conscious that I'm looking over my shoulder a bit. sort of. But it's true. I don't think he likes me telling you. Satan cannot do a thing without God's permission. So you're going behind Satan's back in praying about it. Oh, and the other thing that comes out of, is it the Freedom in Christ course? When you are praying, especially if there's some activity of Satan involved... If you don't speak out loud, at least move your lips and whisper because the Course makes the point, Satan doesn't know what you're thinking. He'd love you to think he does, but he doesn't know what you're thinking. And there's, I, I didn't rehearse this bit, I should have, there, there's, there's some scripture that comes up where Satan proves that he doesn't know what somebody's thinking. So just use words and he'll, he'll hear all right. He would like us to think he has almost equal power with God, but no, he hasn't. There was a famous evangelist in the Pentecostal church called Smith Wigglesworth, who died in 1947, died the year I was born. And he said to have woken up in the middle of the night to find Satan in his bedroom, looking absolutely terrifying. <laughs> and he said, oh, it's only you, and turned over and went back to sleep. And in a book, he wrote, Great Faith is the product of great fights. Great testimonies are the outcome of great tests. And great triumphs can only come 
out of great trials. But that's roughly, I think, how we have to leave Job. Um, what I have suggested we look at is, what might you have said to Job if you'd been one of the friends? Has looking at the book of Job changed your view of God? And if so, how? Has looking at Job helped you personally? And if so, how? It'd be nice to have some easy questions, wouldn't it? But those, given the book, you're a bit hemmed in. <laughs>